0: Last week, we began a new series, fall series, in the book of Galatians. So Galatians is just a small little letter that the Apostle Paul has written to a collection of churches in what is modern-day Turkey, all right? And so as he's written this, last week we looked at the very first nine verses of this book. And what we really just dove deep into was the importance of the gospel, which is what Paul really gets into there, all right? He gets into that there's no other gospel than the one that he came preaching to the Galatians. There are some that have followed him in and they try to add on to this. He says that's a distortion of the gospel. They lose the gospel. Anytime you try to add something to the gospel, you lose the whole gospel entirely. And so Paul is saying like, look, this gospel is so important. So we just kind of relished that. We just reveled in the beauty and the importance of the gospel last week. And so this week, what I want us to do, and I think we're going to find this in these verses that Cherish just read for us. I want us to really wrestle with and set with the power of the gospel that's what I want us to do tonight I want us to set with just how powerful the gospel is because here's what we see throughout the rest of the the bible the bible defines one of the defining qualities about the gospel is that it's powerful that is powerful, all right? So here's what Paul says in Romans 1.16 as he's writing a letter to the Romans. He says this, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it, is, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So here's what I want you to see here, all right? So other than Jesus, there's no other place in the Bible that the power of God is used as a describer than the gospel, literally, is Jesus and the gospel, and that's it. It's one of the defining qualities about the good news of Jesus. And so here's where our minds go whenever we think about this, or at least here's mine, and maybe I shouldn't project this on you. Here's where my mind goes, okay? It's like, you go to the question where it's like, yeah, but how powerful, right? How powerful is the gospel, right? Like, we have this prove it mentality, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'll be the one to decide that. You know what I'm saying? We kind of view it like horsepower in a car. You know, like somebody says like, dude, this thing can go. You're like, prove it. Pop up the hood. Like put the gas down. I want to hear it. You know, like rev that engine. I need to hear the horsepower. I need to, I will be the one that decides how powerful this is. But whenever you look at the Bible and you think, and like the Bible's answer to, yeah, but how powerful is it? Like the prove it idea. Here's how the Bible says It's transforming. The power transforms you. Another way of saying that, it'll change your life. The Bible will change your life. Here's here's how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, meaning you've trusted Jesus, you've given Jesus your life, all of the work that Jesus has done in his life, death, and rex- resurrection, you've trusted in that for the forgiveness of your sins. Not anything that you've done, everything that he's done. If you are in Christ, here's what he says, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Like, if the power of the gospel is that it will change your life. It transforms you. And so, In the passage we're looking at tonight, we get one of the best examples of a gospel-changed life. And the person that we're looking at is Paul, the Apostle Paul himself. And so as you're looking, if you were to study through the the Bible teachers and what they say about this book, they say this about Galatians, that the part that we're entering into is the autobiographical section. All right, Anybody get into autobiographies? Yes? Nobody raising their hands. That's great. (laughs) So you do, you do. Like you listen to Matthew McConaughey's autobiography, right? You're like, oh man, he's so interesting. Like you listen to it. I know you do, right? So some of you get into this. Well, what Paul does in this section is he argues the validity of the gospel. Paul in his autobiography uses his story to argue the validity of the gospel. That's really interesting, isn't it? That he uses his own story to argue for the validity of the gospel. And so what we find here as he is teasing this out is that his life is radically transformed by the power of the gospel, so much so that at the very end of our section, as Cheris was just reading for us, that he says that his story and the transformation that's happened in his life due to the gospel has whole churches that he has never met before Giving glory to God, literally worshiping God because of what God has done in Paul's life. That's the type of transformation that has happened in Paul. And so just the news of Paul's life change caused people to worship God. And so here's what I want us to do, all right? I want tonight to consider just the power of this gospel as we consider Paul's changed life. That's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through these These number of verses where we look at Paul's changed life, and here's what we're going to see, all right? The gospel is so powerful. The gospel is so strong that you can build your life upon it. But beyond that, the gospel is so powerful, and it's so sharp, look, that it can penetrate your heart. Essentially, here's what I'm trying to show you. I want to show you tonight that the gospel is foundational for your life, and the gospel is piercing. All right, that's what we're gonna look at. That's how powerful it is, all right? And so my hope, my desire in the midst of all of this is that by the time we leave, we're reminded, a lot of us have probably heard, yeah, the gospel's so powerful. I want us to be reminded just how powerful this gospel is, that you believe it for your own self, for your own life, but then you also believe it for other people and it affects the way that you share it. That's what I want us to, that's my prayer for where we end tonight, all right? So I believe that as we work through this, that God's word will not return void and that he's gonna do that tonight, all right? So the first thing we need to do is we need to look at how strong God's gospel is. The power is so strong of the gospel that it's foundational for your life. We see this in verse 10, so let me reread it for us. Here's what it says. For am I now trying to persuade people or God Or am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. All right. So like I said, last week we considered the distortions of the gospel, right? So here's what's happened. Paul's gone. He's gone out. He shared the good news of Jesus with the Gentiles. Anybody that's not a Jewish uh, descent, that would be a Gentile. And so he's gone out and he shared the gospel with people of all different tribes and nations. Like he's gone out and he shared and proclaimed the good news. And so as he went out, He taught a whole gospel, but the false teachers, there's people that came in behind Paul in these churches and said, Paul didn't teach you the whole gospel. Paul left out some certain things. And so here's what essentially boils down. Paul came in and said, it's Jesus, period. It's faith. Alone in Christ alone. There is absolutely nothing else that is required of you for salvation of Jesus. Everything that Jesus has done is yours if you trust in Him. That's what Paul has said. But the false teachers follow through and they teach a distorted gospel because they add to it. They say that Jesus is not the only thing that you need, but you need Jesus plus circumcision or becoming like a ritual Jew. We're not gonna get into the circumcision again, like I said last week, so you're welcome. Um, But it's also that it's circumcision, but also following the laws of God. So you need to not only become a Jewish person by the rituals of the Jewish people, but you also need to follow their Jewish commands. You need to follow the rules that would be there. So, essentially what Paul is saying is that uh, these false teachers have come in and said that Jesus isn't enough. Jesus isn't enough. And so you must finish Christ's unfinished work by becoming a ritual Jew and following ritual law. That's what they're saying. And so Paul is coming in, and he's trying to speak against this in this distortion. Now here's why Paul says that these false teachers are coming in and saying that Paul is speaking this false gospel to them. He's preaching this Jesus period instead of Jesus and like they, they are. He's saying this. They're saying Paul's preaching this gospel to you, this watered down gospel to you, because he's just trying to please you. He's trying to get your approval. Paul's trying to water this gospel down because he believes that it's going to be offensive and painful, that you don't have to get circumcision. Circumcision is painful, right? Like, there's no way around that. It's painful, it's hard, it's offensive. It's saying, like, you have to become like one of us. And so they're saying, like, Paul is coming. He's trying to please you by saying that it's not going to be offensive or it's not going to be harmful or hurtful to you. And then he's also, they're also saying, like, That believing the gospel doesn't require anything of you. They're afraid that you, these people that Paul's preaching the gospel to Jesus, period. That they're just going to go and live however they want. Like they're they're not going to live any kind of changed life. They're just going to be like sweet. Jesus has done everything for me, so I don't have to do anything about my life. I can just can continue to live in the life that I was living before I heard Paul come and preach the gospel to me, and nothing has to change. And What Paul's response here is, in verse 10, is if I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul's saying, like, these people that are coming in saying that I'm just trying to please you and water down the gospel and make it painless and not offensive and that there's no response that it demands on your life. He's like, why would I be a servant of Jesus if that is what I was truly trying to do? He was like, Do I need to take off my shirt for you? Like, do I need to show you how painful the gospel has been for my life? People have threatened my life because of this gospel. People have tried to stone me to death, brought me out of the city, left me for dead because of this gospel. People are trying to continually come after me and put me to death. Because of this gospel. You want to talk to me about trying to please you and talk to you about this gospel not being something that brings about pain on your life? Let me just take off my shirt and show you the whips that are on my back. But then he's also like, You want to talk to me about not being a person under authority? That there's no call or response on my life? He says, I'm a servant. Another word, like another word that is used in the Greek for this is slave. I've, I've completely given up my life to Jesus. My, in fact, my life is no longer mine. Jesus is Lord. He's the one that calls all the shots in my life. And so look, Paul's saying like, get out of here. Me trying to please you? If that was truly what I was wanting to do. I never would have taken up the gospel. And Paul's not saying this is like, man, this is my obligation in life. Look what, how hard my life is because of what I have to do for Jesus. No, he says, this is my privilege. Like taking up and being the abuse and the fence and all that's come to me, being a servant of Jesus, this is not an obligation. This is my privilege. You see this in Philippians 3.10. Because Paul's goal in life is to know Christ. Here's what he says. My goal is to know him. And look at this, the power of his resurrection. I want to know Paul. I want Paul saying, I want to know Jesus so deeply that I know what it's like to be raised from the dead. I, I want to know Jesus so much that I want to know what it's like to f- be in fellowship with his sufferings. Those, those whippings on my back being Try people trying to stone me to like people coming after my life. Look, this is a privilege for me. I want to, in fact, I want to be in such deep fellowship that I experience the sufferings of Jesus that it's like if I'm as if he's like right there with me and I went through what he went through. Like he says, I want to be conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among. Look, this is, Paul's saying this isn't my obligation. This is my privilege. But I'm not doing it to please you. My life is now under authority in Jesus. I seek to please him. So here's what Paul understands. Here's what, if if your life and salvation are built upon anything other than the sufficient work of Christ, it's never stable. That's what Paul understands. He's like, look, if I was trying to please you, I wouldn't be doing this thing. But my approval isn't found in the eyes of any person here on this earth. And the reason that I don't live for anybody here on this earth is because if I were living for the approval of man, there would be no foundation that I could live on. The approval of man is like sand. It's always shifting and it's never foundational. It's never secure. I mean, you cannot build your life upon the approval of man because it's always going to be swept out from under your feet. You're always going to have to be shifting and living with this constant state of fear. But the gospel of Christ is a rock. It is strong and it is powerful. It is sufficient and it's complete. And look, you can build a whole entire life upon the work that Christ has done for you. So let let, let me kind of try to illustrate this for us, all right? So um, I've spent much of my life Living for the approval of others, all right? And I think the way that I've seen this is any time that I've had a major move in my life, literally picked up all my belongings in my life and I moved to different places, all right? And here's the way that's kind of fleshed itself out for me, all right? So as I look back on my life and I look on the ways that I've tried to find approval whenever I moved to new places, it always has to do with personal success. Always has to do with it. Every time that I've moved, I've always, like... I don't think I've verbally said this, but this is what would happen in my mind and my heart. I would say people accept me whenever I succeed. All right, so here's what it looked like for me whenever I was younger, all right? So we moved a couple of times, moved right before I moved in, uh, stepped into middle school, and then right before I stepped into high school. And so here's what I found. It was hard for me to get into relationships with people and find friendship until I proved myself in some way. And the way that I proved myself was through sports, and so I would find that I was kind of on the margins of friendships until I did really well in sports. And so I, there, thankfully, like God was kind to me. I was able to go and be a part of some really great teams that I was a part of, basketball and track. And so what I found, though, is like I was always on the margins with any of those friends until I did really well in that sport. And that, like, I got to taste some of it, right? Like, so middle school, I set the record for my middle school in winning medals in track. I, like, I found approval in the eyes of other people. Whenever I, we picked up our family and we moved to a different place right before high school hit, the same thing happened. I was on the margins my whole entire freshman year. Track was at the very end of the school year. And so I, I got into track, and man, I saw lots of success. And that's when I found friends. It was like... This night and day difference that it was as soon as I did well in something that I finally found the approval I was looking for. Now, here's the thing. It was always so anxiety-riding inside of me. Whenever a meet would come, I couldn't sleep the night before because I knew, I knew that my approval was going to be found in how well I did in that upcoming meet. And so I was so afraid that if I didn't do well in that meet that I lost my friends. You see what I'm saying? Same thing still happens. Like we moved, even as adult, this has happened to me, all right? So I moved from Oklahoma to Kentucky to go do school and I was pursuing to do this. Like I was wanting to preach to people, right? And so I went to school and I I would be so hard on myself and I put so much pressure on myself But what I really longed for was the approval of other people. And so look, what I did, I went to school so that I could learn the Bible, so I could stand up in front of people like you to tell people about Jesus. And here's how just wicked my heart is. I would get up in front of people and I so lived for what you would say about my preaching that it would produce so much anxiety in me anytime that I got up to preach or anytime I received feedback on my preaching. And here's what it said. I had to impress whenever I got, to, got up and talked to people about the Bible or else I was gonna lose my purpose. All of this is shifting sand. You feel that with me? Like you have these things in your life, whether it's your school, whether it's a dating relationship, whether it's the approval of your parents, there's always something in your life that is always gonna capture your heart. That you say, if I can just get their approval, then I will finally have purpose and meaning and life and worth. It's all sand. It's all sand. Now, here's the good news. like, um, I'm growing, I believe, in learning what it's like to follow Jesus. And so here's the good news of the gospel for us, all right? The good news of the gospel is that Jesus gives you his approval. Jesus gives you his approval. So... Look at, think about Jesus' life, all right? So Jesus' life, as he is growing up and he's stepping into the world, the first thing that you see in the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus comes to John the Baptist for baptism, right? So he hasn't done anything. He hasn't done anything yet, right? And so Jesus comes to John the Baptist to relate and associate with sinners. That's what he's coming to do. And so as he comes to get this baptism... What you see is just this glorious picture that happens at his baptism, right? He steps into the waters. He's put down into the water. He's brought back up. And here's what Mark says. The skies are ripped open. And the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. And then there's an audible voice that comes from heaven. And what does it say? We see this in Mark 1, 11. It says, you are my beloved son and with you I'm well pleased. Before Jesus has done anything, God speaks his divine approval over his son. And then you see Jesus, he lives this perfect life, right? He walks in complete fellowship, never broken fellowship with God in this life. And then as he's right before he's about to go to the cross, he he has this final meal with his disciples, all right? And through the finished work of Christ, here's what we see, that Jesus shares his approval with us. And you see this in his final words to his disciples. So John 15, 9 says this, As the Father has loved me, as Jesus has experienced the Father's love, this never up and down, always consistent in Jesus' life love for him, Jesus says this, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. And he goes and he proves how much God has loved you and how much he loves you by laying down his life for you. And why does he do that? Jesus does it so that he can give you the approval that was given to him in his life so that you can live from his approval in this life in relationship with God. That's what Jesus has done for you. Look, this is so foundational. This is how powerful the gospel is that you can build your life off of the approval that Jesus has won for you. You don't have to live with anxiety. You don't have to live with trying to earn your way to God. Jesus has done all of it for you. And because he has died and lived and he's seated at the right hand of God, he can graciously and freely give you his approval that he got in this life. That's something that you can build a life off of. That's something that you can live from. Look, here's what um, John Piper, he's a pastor or a former pastor, um, he says this about the book of Romans. He says um, that it's the Mount Everest of the Bible. So the largest peak. If you want to think about the climax of the Bible, it's the book of Romans. And he says Romans 8 is at the peak of that mount. All right? And so. It's there that Paul shares just how powerful and foundational the work of Christ is, all right? So verse 34, he says, who can condemn you? Who can condemn you? And he, where does he go? He goes to the life of Jesus. He says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. But even more, he's the one that's been raised. And he's also at the right hand of God and he intercedes for us. So here's basically what he says. Look, Jesus, he died for you. He rose for you. And then he took a seat for you and he's seated at the right hand of God where nobody can touch him. Nobody can take him back and put him back into the grave. There's nobody that can touch him. There's absolutely nothing that can be done. And so here's the implications that he says about that for us in verses 38 through the nine. It'll be on the screen for you. It says this, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of god that is in Christ Jesus our lord so here's what paul is saying these people say i'm coming to talk to you and give you a gospel just so that i can please you my life proves that wrong what they do is they actually empty the gospel and it's not anything that you can build a life upon but the gospel that i brought to you is so strong is so powerful that you can build a whole life upon it because it is a complete and fulfilled work. Nothing has to be added to it. So the invitation is build your life upon it. There's nothing, there's nothing in this world that you can find that is so strong as the gospel to build your life upon. It is a constant rock below your feet. Everything else is sand. So look, the gospel is foundational. It's so strong. It is so powerful. You can build your whole life upon it. But we see more than that. We also see that the gospel is also so powerful that it's sharp and it's penetrating. Another way of saying it, it's piercing. All right? We see this in verses 11 through 12. For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel preached by me is not of human origin, for i did not receive it from a human source and i was not taught it but it came by a revelation of jesus christ so look here's what paul is doing he's defending the gospel against three notions all right that the gospel is no human invention paul didn't just think this up is not a human tradition it's not something that was passed down to him and it's not human instruction that someone taught to him we see all of this in those two verses as well as the ones that are following so let me unpack it a little bit for you Right. so it's no human invention Paul's saying look I didn't make this up I didn't like just think this up and then come and try to lay it down before you at your feet in order to try to get your approval no I wanted to destroy it My whole life was hell bent on seeing this gospel eradicated out of this world. It came to me by revelation from Jesus Christ. Literally, what he's saying is Jesus had to show up in the middle of the Damascus Road and shine so bright that it blinded me so I could finally see. That's what Paul's saying. I didn't think this up. That's crazy talk. My whole whole life was bent against this. There's no way that I would have thought this up. But he says it's also not any human tradition. This isn't something that was just passed down from him. We see this in his life as well. He says the gospel wasn't this thing that was passed down to him. Why? Because he was an expert in the law. He was an expert in Hebrew tradition. That's what we see in verse... 14 He says I advance in Judaism beyond my contemporaries. Paul's saying, look, no one passed this down to me. I, I excelled beyond anybody else that was seeking to try to be a Pharisee or a religious leader amongst God's people. I was the first among none. Like I was I stood out above everybody else. If it was a tradition, I would have known about it. He said, it wasn't passed down to me. but it also wasn't human instruction. No one taught me the gospel. We see this in verse 18, or sorry, we see this in verse 16. It says, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Verse 17, I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who had become apostles before me. Instead, I went to Arabia and came back to Damascus. Here's what Paul is saying. I didn't go to Jerusalem where all the other apostles were so that I could hear what this good news of Jesus was so they could tell me and then I could go then tell other people. He's like, I actually did the opposite. I went to Arabia. I went to the very farthest place, the place that rejected God holistically. That's where I went. And it's there as I wrestled with God for three years that I learned where Jesus was in all the scriptures. I didn't, no one instructed me in this. In fact, even whenever Paul says he goes back and he meets with, Peter, and James, the brother of Jesus, and the rest of the apostles. He says, all they did was confirm it. All they did was confirm that, look, this gospel that Jesus gave me on that road to Damascus, where my eyes were blinded, that same gospel was given to Peter and James and all the rest of the apostles too, and there was just this huge celebration that the same gospel came to each of us in different ways. It's like, my God. Gosh, this thing is incredible. That was, that's what Paul is saying here. So Paul defends the gospel through his story. He's sharing how his life gives validity to the gospel, but it does more than that. It also shows how powerful and piercing the gospel is because here's what we see in Paul's story. I want to get a little bit more into those details. We see that Paul's life is deeply religious. Deeply, deeply religious, but it's also wildly sinful, wildly sinful, all right? So here's what Paul could say to us if he was in this room. He could say, no one outperformed me in keeping the law, right? We saw this in verse 14, like I said, no one advanced beyond me amongst my contemporaries in Judaism. In another letter, we get Paul's resume, all right, where he unpacks this understanding of what it means that he was a religious person. All right. He impacts just exactly what it meant that no one could excel beyond him. All right. Philippians chapter three gives us this resume and it's elite, right? It's elite. Nobody has a resume like Paul. He says this, circumcised. So I am a ritual Jew. And in fact, it happened on the eighth day, the exact day that it was supposed to happen. That's exactly when I was circumcised. Why his parents would relay that to him, I don't know. That's weird, but Paul says, it's on my resume. He also says, I'm Israel born and bred. Look, Paul says that he is born from the tribe of Benjamin. At this point in time, it's very rare that you would know exactly which tribe from Israel that you would come from. Paul's like, I know exactly where I came from. I know exactly. Not only am I born an Israelite, but I even know exactly which tribe I came from. That's how great I am. Then he says this, I was also a Pharisee. Here's what a Pharisee does. They memorize the first five books of the Bible. Paul's like, I nailed it, crushed it. I mean, you want to quiz me on it? I would know everything about it. There's nobody that excelled more than me in knowing the first five books of the Bible. No one could compete with me. And then he ends by saying, law keeping, I was blameless. All those laws, the 600 laws that God gave to his people, I did it. You want to try to, if you want to play the comparison game, you don't want to play it with me. I would outdo you. You would, you would be demolished. Paul's saying this. This is all of his resume. He's saying no one could outperform keeping the law. But look, he also says of himself, we see this in this, uh, his story here. He also says no one could outperform his sinfulness either. Verse 13, I intensely persecuted God's church and tried to destroy it. Again, we also get just, we see how sinful Paul is in a letter that he wrote to his protege, Timothy. And it's wicked, guys. It's wicked. He says this about himself. I was a blasphemer. I blatantly rejected Jesus. And why this is blasphemy is because Jesus is God. Completely rejected him blatantly rejected him. Persecutor. That's what Paul says of himself. I was a persecutor. I tried to destroy the church. He killed innocent people. He would, he got this, he got this piece of paper that would allow him to travel throughout the land and any place that people called on the name of Jesus. He could arrest them and then have them tried and killed. And he was doing it. That's what he was doing on the road to Damascus as he was going to Damascus. He was trying to go and take prisoners and see people put to death because they called him on the name of Jesus. And then it ends with him being arrogant. He says, I was so arrogant. I was impenetrable. Like you cannot have a conversation with me. My heart was so hard that if you tried to come and talk to me about Jesus, there's no getting through. It was, I was so Ironclad. There's no way that I could have a conversation with you about Jesus. I was arrogant. I thought I had all of the answers, and that you were completely wrong. And so, look, like, Paul's like, "This is who I am. I'm so religious. I keep all the rules. I do all of the right things. But at the same time, I was so incredibly wicked. What could pierce a man like this? What could get to the heart of a man like this?" The gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel could penetrate a heart that thought he did not need anything, but yet was also so deeply wicked that he couldn't see it for himself. What could penetrate a heart like that? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's what i like, listen to this. I need you to get this. Free gifts that are costly are life-changing. Free gifts that are costly are life-changing. All right, so let me try to, Put this in a story form for us, all right. Just just imagine this is you. Imagine how distraught and out of place that you'd be put in this situation, right? So imagine you go to get your yearly physical, all right? If you do that. (laughs) Imagine you're going to your yearly physical. And so you go to your yearly physical, like you're young, like there's no symptoms that you have. Like, I mean, there's nothing that would lead you to think that there was anything wrong with your body. And so the doctor runs his normal test, he gets the blood work, he does all the things, right? But the tests come back and reveal terminal illness. Like you're going to die. Like you're shocked by the news. Like what in the world? And he says like there is a surgery. There's a surgery. It's not covered by your insurance. And it will, there's no way that you could afford it. And so you leave and you're like, blindsided by everything. Like, you went in thinking that you were good, right? You didn't need anything. You thought this was just a normal checkup that you're going to leave and everything was going to be exactly the way it was whenever you left. But then you feel utterly helpless because there's this terminal illness that's diagnosed on your life. There is something that can be done, but you can't afford it. You can't pay for it. And so you go back home and you're telling, like, you're distraught and you're just like, how in the world can I tell my family and my friends this? And you do the best that you can, you know? Like, you go, you sit down, like, if you're married, you sit down your spouse and you're like, I don't even know how to begin to try to tell you exactly what just happened at this doctor's office. And so, like, you're stumbling over your words and you, like, finally kind of get it out and everybody's just, like, dazed and confused, right? Like, what terminal illness, like, but, like... Like your heart's fine. Like you, there's nothing that has you've talked about. Like you, you have had no like headaches. Like there's been no like aches or things that are going on. Like there's nothing swollen in your like. I'm like they're just confused and they're like put out. They're like, what are you talking about? And as you're doing this and you're sharing all of this, like your neighbor across the fence, you have Wilson from like Home Improvement that's like over there and he like hears everything, you know what I'm talking about? And so like he hears what's going on and like without you knowing it, here's what they do. He goes, he sells his house. He like liquidates all of his life savings. Sells everything that he has. Like literally all that he has, gets rid of all of it and he pays for your surgery does everything that he can in order to help you see. Like, it's so costly, right? Like, someone you kind of barely know. It's like one of those neighbors that you're like, I think I know his first name. <laughs> and then they go and take drastic measures like this. What's the response to that? Like, someone gives you a free pen, like, big deal, right? Like, it's free, but it's not costly, Someone sacrifices everything for you, it's life-changing. What's the appropriate response? Like, what do you do if someone does that for you? Like, you get down on your knees and you're like, my life is yours. I'm dead without you. You've done everything. Like, a free gift, there's nothing. I can't pay you back for this. Like there's, I couldn't pay for the surgery myself, let alone me trying to pay you back for what you've done for me. And it was so costly. Like you've put yourself entirely out of the way for me. And it's all because I could, so I could live. It's free and it's costly and it's life changing. And that's what Paul found in the gospel of Christ. Philippians 3.8 says this. In light of, that's where we find his resume, where he says, I, there's nobody that can compete with me. There's nobody. I was so good. I was so successful. I was so ahead and shoulders above everybody else. And here's what he says in verse 8. I consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. What penetrates somebody that thinks that they have everything and they don't need anything? the gospel of Jesus Christ. But here's what he says in 1 Timothy 1.15 where he lays out just how sinful and wicked he is. He says this, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and look at this, and I'm the worst of them. What could penetrate the heart of somebody that feels like there's nothing that they could ever do to overcome the list of sins that they have, they have done in this world towards others and God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what penetrates their hearts. And so here's what a pastor from New York, um, he's recently deceased, Tim Keller says this, through Paul, we see that no one is so good that they don't need the grace of the gospel, nor so bad that they can't receive the grace of the gospel. That's what you see in the story of Paul. That's like the testimony that's laid before us. That's why God divinely interrupts. One of the verses in the passage that we're looking at tonight says that God was pleased to reveal Jesus Christ in Paul's life. He was pleased. The person that was trying to eradicate the name of Jesus out of this world, God says, I was pleased to reveal my love, to reveal my work, to reveal all that I have done in and through the life and work of Jesus to this blasphemer, this persecutor, and this arrogant person that thought he didn't need help from anybody. My gospel was given for him and I revealed it to him. Look, so that I could penetrate all the way deep down into his heart to show him just how much he's left. That's what happens in the story of Paul so look like I I started off by saying like man I want us to recognize how powerful this gospel is and I want us to believe it for our own life and I also want us to believe it for other people all right so here's my question for us as we have wrestled with Paul's story we've wrestled with just how life-changing the gospel was for his life here's my question do you believe in the power of the gospel like do you believe this The life, death, and resurrection all done on your behalf. Do you believe in the power of that gospel? That the God of the universe so loved you and saw how deeply despairing your situation was. You didn't recognize it. God did, and he stepped in. He left his rightful place in heaven, put on human flesh, was announced, pleased, approved, laid down his life for you only to take it back up again so that he could share his resurrected life with you, nothing that you've done, everything that he's done for you. Do you believe in the power of that gospel? Maybe I should ask it like this. One, do you believe in the power of the gospel to change you? Here's what Martin Luther said, a guy that he, he talks about this gospel that we've been talking about. He says that, when he finally realized it, there was this breakthrough that happened in his life. But here's what he says about the life lived with Jesus and how you see progress in your life. He says this, any progress in the Christian life comes from beginning again. What does that mean? It means that you never progress beyond the gospel. We often think that it's the gospel that gets us in and then it's the Jesus and. And it's like, Jesus was my steroid shot and now I have to read the Bible and now I have to pray and now I have to go do good works for Jesus and this is how I see progress happen in my life but Luther's saying, no, the way that you actually see change that happens in your life is not that you move beyond the gospel but you go deeper and deeper and deeper down into it because it's this endless mind with unknowable riches that you can go and you can go explore the depths of this mind and extract all the beauty of the gospel. And as the further you get down, the more and more beautiful that it gets for you. Here's, here's how, let me, three piece, all right? Three piece for how you grow in the gospel, all right? Jesus is your pattern. Jesus is your pattern. You look at the life of Jesus and you're like, Jesus's life is what I want my life to be. It's you follow in the footsteps of Jesus. He lived the perfect life, perfect fellowship with God. And so we follow his commands. We follow what Jesus has done. Now, here's the thing for you, all right? You need a second P. Because as you look at the life and pattern of Jesus, you'll recognize that you can't keep it. You can't keep it. The gospel does something in you that it now It gives you the desire, opens your eyes, and you want it. You've tasted it. You've seen it. You want to live in it. We still have this broken body. We still wrestle with sin. And so here's the second P that you need. You need Jesus to be your pardon. You need Jesus to be your pardon. As you follow and you walk in step with Jesus, and as you fall, you come back to the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has laid down his sacrificed life for you. That I come and I call on the grace of God that's been accomplished for me through the life and blood of Jesus. And when I call on the name of Jesus and I I say, I'm sinful and I'm wicked and I need your forgiveness, it says that Jesus is your advocate. And he goes to God and he says, That sin has been paid for. You can't charge it to his account, he's your pardon. And look, the response to this is not that you just go and do whatever the heck you want. The response is, I want to continue to experience. Like Paul says, I want to experience the power of his resurrection. I want to walk in step with Jesus. And so look, the gospel is also your power. God gives you the Holy Spirit in your life that you now have the power to actually obey. Jesus says in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. But look, because you are so loved, Because God has done everything for you. He's given you the gift of his Holy Spirit that you can walk in the power of the gospel. So look, it never starts, this change in your life never happens by moving beyond the gospel. It always comes from starting again. You continually come back to the gospel and preach this gospel to you and what the result is is a changed life. Do you believe in the power of the gospel to change you? then you'll never move beyond it. Second question, do you believe in the power of the gospel to save others? The gospel possesses the power to break through in people's life. Like here's, whether we say it out loud or not, there's people in our life that we think this. They're too far gone. They're too far gone. Look, it may be you that you think that. It may be you that I've done something that I could never forgive myself for and so there's no way that God could forgive me either. But friends, that's not the gospel. What we get in the gospel is that it is so powerful and it's so strong and it's so piercing that there's nothing in your life that is more powerful than the saving love of God. That's proven to us in Jesus himself. And so, man, if we believe in this powerful gospel that there's no one that's too far gone and there's no one that lacks in need of the gospel, then you go and you share it. You go tell people about it. You're like Paul... And you use your story to say either you are the person that thought you were too good that you didn't need Jesus and he divinely interrupted your life and showed you how deeply you needed him or you're the person that did the sin that thought was unsavable from and God showed you just how lavish his grace and his mercy is to you in your life and you go and you share your story you share what Jesus has done you you Gosh, you love to tell people just how loving and forgiving and wanting God is of them. Like, do you know how deeply wanted you are? You're so wanted that God gave his most deeply prized possession for you. That's how deeply you're wanted. You go and you share it. And so look, here's five dimensions that you can think through in like ways that you go share the love of Jesus with. You share the good news of the gospel with him. It's your location, where you live. It's not happenstance that you live either in the apartment complex or in the dorm that you live in or the neighborhood that you reside in. That is all by God's plan. The neighbors that are around you have been placed next to you. It's your privilege to go share the gospel with them, to befriend them, invite them into your home. Secondly, secondly, vocation, where you work. Even your work isn't an happenstance. You're like, but yeah, yeah, I I have these desires and these interests though. And like, I also have these abilities and these gifts. And so all of those have led me in the path and the trajectory that I'm on. It's like, you're cute. (laughs) Like, God spoke you into He thought you up before this world was even created. He's the one that gave you those gifts. He's the one that spoke you into existence in this world at this point in time. And all that applies to your work too. The people that are around you at your work, you get to share the power of the gospel with them. Your recreation, where you play, even your hobbies, your your hobbits. Your hobbits, oh my gosh. Your hobbies and your habits (laughs) are given to you by God so that you can share the good news of Jesus with people. Restoration, where there's need around you. God lifts up your chin and sets your gaze out from not just your own navel, but all the people that are around you, and there are people that are living in deep need. And the call in your life is to go share the good news of Jesus with them. And then multiplication, the next generation, the kids that are around you. Look, you may not have a kid, but there are kids around you. (laughs) And they're lost. Like my kids need to hear the good news of Jesus from more than just their mom and their dad. They need a third voice in their life. Somebody that can help them see that mom and dad aren't crazy. (laughs) that speaks the good news of Jesus in their life, that models what a life lived with Jesus and what a life of repentance looks like. They need to see it. And so the question isn't if you should go share the good news, but if you believe in the power of the gospel, it's where? And you have those different dimensions. So you pray and then you go tell people about it. Look, all possess a deep need for redemption. None are too lost from God's Saving power. All right, let me conclude with this. All right, there's a, a, a poem that I think just succinctly puts all that we've talked about. Um, it's by this man, William Cowper. Um, he was a conflicted man. He, had, he, was a li- he lived a life that didn't have any great sin, so some would title him as a, a good man, but yet he was a guilt-ridden man to the point that he had serious bouts of depression and constant suicide attempts in his life. And he came to faith through John chapter 11, which is the Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He raises Lazarus from the dead. And he says, I was overwhelmed by the benevolence and the mercy and goodness and sympathy of Jesus towards miserable people. It penetrated his heart. And here's what he had to say in response to his salvation experience. To see the law by Christ fulfilled And hear his pardoning voice saying, Jesus lived fully in my place. He died completely for me. And because of that, I hear his pardoning voice. I have right relationship with God. And look, transforms a slave into a child and duty and a choice. That's the power of the gospel. The gospel is important. But the gospel is also powerful. It's so strong that you can build your life upon it. It's foundational. And the gospel is so sharp that it can penetrate the hardest of hearts, including anybody in this room. Let's pray.